0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Young brains aren't just learning language and
1: social skills. They're also learning to process pain. What we absolutely know is that if you have a sickness during your early life and you have a fair amount of pain and that pain is uncontrolled, that it's a definite setup for any type of chronic pain syndrome or increased sensitivity to pain later in life.
0: Our series on pain continues with detecting and treating pain in the littlest patients. Then the great buildings Denver has lost, including Brinton Terrace.
2: Artists of all sorts could live under one roof and collaborate. Hmm. And it got to be uh, very bohemian.
0: And remembering a man who had the vision to save precious places, including historic Five Points.
3: My name is Raymond Lorenz, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. The car was an old-timer, but it was in outstanding condition, and we wanted to pass it on to somebody that would appreciate it. And there were tears of joy when we heard how much they sold the car for. It was very simple. I just set it up online, and I watched them load it up onto the flatbed truck and and drive it away. Learn how to donate your car at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Being a teenager can be painful, and not just emotionally. Dr. Alan Bielski runs the Chronic Pain Clinic at Children's Hospital Colorado, and teens, he says, are a very typical patient. We're going to chat with him as part of our series on pain, which so far has focused on grown-ups. And Dr. Bielski, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to start with a little of your own story. You are an anesthesiologist, as you put it to me before air. You're good at numbing things, but a point came when you wanted to do more. Is that right?
1: Yeah. You know, I think I used to always think of pain as pretty simple phenomena, that something hurts and you make it stop hurting. And then I realized that even if I used some of our most effective modalities, whether they're epidurals or nerve blocks, that some people just still experience miserable pain.
0: And the idea there is get at the deeper roots of this. And uh, what challenges are there in doing that in younger patients?
1: Absolutely. Well, we take care of a you know, really broad spectrum of patients at our hospital, at Children's Hospital Colorado. So you can have a, a newborn that can't speak, um, and we have to figure out if they're having pain. And that goes from a continuum through you know the toddler years to young adults with varying degrees of developmental problems. So really, at the end of the day, you're left guessing a little bit, and that can be really difficult. And mm-hmm. then as we get older, obviously we have a more developed uh, psychological response to pain, and that can be very challenging also.
0: Can being born, you know, a rough birth, lead to, say, chronic
1: pain in a newborn? That's a great question. So if you look at rough births, the actual act of being born. Um, It does not at this point seem to have any huge implication on how people will develop and what their sensitivity to pain will be. But what we absolutely know is that if you have a sickness during your early life and you have a fair amount of pain and that pain is uncontrolled, that it's a definite setup for any type of chronic pain syndrome or increased sensitivity to pain later in life.
0: What would be examples of early illness that might affect, yeah, a lifetime of pain experience?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I, I would base it on the fact that our brains are always learning and they're plastic is what we call it in the medical field. They're always changing. So if you have really any insult, if you're born premature, requiring a lot of blood tests and a lot of needle pokes that we need. You know, these are necessary things. That repeated stimulation, that repeated painful experience can basically increase your sensitivity to pain. And then you combine that with things that we regularly encounter in a children's hospital, such as surgeries, putting in IVs, all of these things can really make you have an increased sensitivity to pain. Now, the flip side is that regular childhood painful problems, insults, scraped knees don't lead to this. This really is a phenomena of continued, continued insults. So is the idea there that if you
0: are continually poking and prodding and cutting, you have to be mindful then? of Yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. So what we'll wind up doing is really thinking about the concept of what we call preventative analgesia. So that says, hey, listen, if we're going to do something to you, if we're going to do a blood draw or we're going to do an IV stick or we're going to do a surgery, that we're going to give you something beforehand, whether we can numb it or we can give you a systemic medication or we can use simple things, to be honest with you, like hot packs. You can also use vibration. We have these buzzies occasionally that we use. All of these things can really do a lot to try to make it so that you don't have what we call wind-up, which is where we have an increased uh, amount of our brain that is dedicated to pain sensation. Fascinating. Now, in
0: the introduction, I mentioned specifically teenagers. You say that they are very often your pain patients. Why, Why do you think that is?
1: Absolutely. With our chronic pain clinic, we see a phenomena where Pain is biopsychosocial. So, if I cut my hand, I have biologic pain. Mm-hmm. I have this laceration, and then the psychosocial components really usually get ignored for me because I, you know, I'm an adult and I'm sort of used to realizing that it's not going to hurt me. When you're in your phases of development, specifically those that are in the teenage years. Um, everything is really up for grabs, right? And so you run into a, a changing milieu of your psychosocial development. And they can go haywire. And as a result, we have you know a group of kids that may not have had the greatest access to mental health resources that we've all seen. And suddenly they have a painful insult and their psychosocial system really adapts in a bad way. That's a lot of how we wind up addressing these issues is really by coming up with our biopsychosocial model and addressing a lot of the psychosocial elements.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating. It's really the idea that pain in young people, uh, because their bodies, their brains are changing so fast, they're just receiving that differently. Uh, And the effects of it are different than it would be on adults. Could you give me an example
1: of that? Absolutely, we have we had a teenage skier, she was fantastic, and she developed a syndrome called complex regional pain syndrome. She had a minor insult to her hand and she developed warmth, pain, she developed some muscle changes, and while the hand physically has healed, hmm. parts of her brain are basically saying, hey, something's wrong here, and it can lead to a cycle of lack of motion, in an increased pain and so we had to break that cycle with a combination of medicines and some psychological techniques that decreased the neural networks that were dedicated to the pain in our hand that decreased the neural networks what what, what, what do you mean so pain is always all in our head right that's just our head is our brain and that's what senses pain and we have a specific area in our brain called the somatosensory system that is dedicated to feeling pain or vibration or cold or hot. And just like anything else in the brain, it can go a little haywire and spend a little too much time on certain areas of the body. And so those are the neural networks that we talk about. And those can be retrained. Absolutely. It takes work, but it can be done. And it uh, that's why we have some amazing physical therapists and psychologists that really do the bulk of the uh, heavy lifting when it comes to some of these primary pain disorders, which is what we call these things, when there's really nothing wrong physically with the area that hurts, but there is something wrong with all of the nerves that are going to it and how we process that pain message.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and as part of our series on pain, we're talking about pain In young people. Dr. Alan Bielski joins me. He runs the Chronic Pain Clinic at Children's Hospital Colorado in Aurora. Okay, tell me about mirror therapy in particular. I'm just fascinated.
1: Literally, at first I thought it was voodoo, but they put a mirror (laughs) up to the hand and they do some exercises so that you actually perceive that your other hand is working in a normal fashion and it's not There's nothing wrong with it physically, that it can move. And once you start doing this, it tricks your brain into realizing that your other hand is okay also. And so it decreases sort of the protection system that we have from our brain when it goes a little haywire.
0: So wait, you're looking at the opposite hand,
1: for instance? You're looking at the unaffected hand uh-huh. and moving it, and it's tricking your brain into thinking that both hands are moving normally. To
0: the youngest kiddos, when you have a patient who is pre-verbal or, or you know, mm-hmm. acquiring verbal skills and can't necessarily articulate, I have a pain here, it feels like this, and it occurs at, at times certain at that point, that's where you're doing some guesswork, I gather.
1: We're doing guesswork, but we also have some amazing tools. There have been really through the efforts of a lot of pain nursing in combination with physicians like me and a whole bunch of other people have come up with objective pain measures. And those are are ways to look at a child and say something like we use the FLAC scale, which is face, legs, arms, consolability and crying. It's a mnemonic and it grades each of the child's reactions. And so if you have a child that's totally still not crying um, and not, you know, bunching up their arms, then your flak is zero. And if they're crying and they're consolable and everything else is normal, then you have a flak of one. So we use this scale to really come up with an objective measure. Hmm. And it's really hard because there's always subjectivity to pain but it's the best we have, but it's pretty powerful.
0: If there are parents listening who are inclined to tell their kids to shake it off, <laughs> I feel right. like I heard that a lot from my stepfather. So who, did I. Yeah, who happened to be the coach of my little league team and my soccer team. Um, and I was kind of a wimpy kid. But like, what? what is your advice for how, Parents react to pain because you know you overreact, and the kid has an audience, and they gauge your reaction, and it makes theirs worse.
1: Absolutely, I'm a parent of an 11 and 14 year old, and both of them have, I would say, some component of regular kids' approach to some a little bit of hypochondriasis and drama. (laughs) I'm used to it; it's not that big of a deal. You know, I think that there's a, as I say with everything, there's a continuum. You got to sort of teach kids to experience what they're experiencing, whether it's good or bad, and to really grade it. We run into problems, I think, when we have a person that only sees black and white, that they only see absolute uncontrollable pain or a total absence of pain. And that's, that's not life. That's not living. So I would say that you have to put it within reason and you don't blow off people and you don't tell them to be tougher all the time sometimes you need to um but i think also that you sort of teach kids to accept their pain and try to come up with uh some gradation for everything and my dad was a doctor also and i would go up to him and i would say hey you know my arm's hurting and instead of saying it's nothing you're not dead you know he would say okay i understand let's take a look at it real quickly and then 99.999 of the time she'd say i think you're okay and some people have read the beauty of a skinned knee and coming up with that answer of addressing the pain caring and then honestly assessing how bad it really is and giving that feedback to the child is probably the most important thing we can all do to keep those neural networks nice and open and flowing like they're supposed to mm. the blessing
0: of a skin knee raising self-reliant children by wendy mogul phd do pain medications work well in children
1: Sometimes yes and sometimes no. We have medicines, we have different classes of medicines, and we can use them basically the same as we use them in adults, just at a lower dose that corrects for their body weight and corrects for how they metabolize drugs. We don't love over-medicating kids, obviously, but sometimes you have to. And I'd rather give appropriate medications at appropriate doses that reduce the risk of side effects in a child than not address their pain.
0: What still vexes you in the field of pediatric pain?
1: That's amazing. What still vexes me? There's so many things that vexes me. Um, I think ultimately understanding why some people are still more sensitive to pain than others is fascinating. I have a surgical colleague who's a fantastic person and surgeon, and I think he processes pain differently He is a professional cyclist and, or was a professional cyclist, and can endure an amazing amount of pain without noticing it. Whereas a lot of what we see in our chronic pain clinic is people that have very clear problems with processing pain and just feel it more. They experience it more. What that is, I have absolutely no idea. I Hmm. wish someone much smarter than me would figure it out, but until then, I am left with the rubble that is created by different sensitivities to pain. So I think that that's one of the main things that really eats at me is just philosophically, scientifically, why are people experiencing this in such a different way? Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for listening
0: to me. Anesthesiologist, Dr. Alan Bielski runs the chronic pain clinic at Children's Hospital, Colorado in Aurora. Find all the conversations in our series at cpr.org slash onpain. And we'll be right back to experience some nostalgia for places we've never been. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. First-generation kids can struggle to fit in. That was true for Alan Benavides when his mother sent him to the first day of school in Aguayavera. And again, years later, when he went to Oregon to manage a minor league baseball
1: team. I never felt more brown in my life.
0: How Alan Benavides hit a home run. The new episode of CPR's podcast, Can Are We? Exploring what it means to be Latino, Hispanic, Chicana, everywhere you find podcasts. Is it possible to miss a place you've never been? I think the answer is yes, because there's a spectacular building that got knocked down long before I came to Colorado. I think about it all the time, though. I never saw it for myself, never went inside, yet I miss it. And I'm not alone, according to author Mark A. Barnhouse. His latest book is called Vanished Denver Landmarks. And I met him where this bygone building used to be.
2: Hi, Mark. Hi, Ryan. Uh, Where are we and what used to be here? We're standing uh, near the corner of 16th and Curtis Streets in downtown Denver. This was the Tabor Grand Opera House.
0: And Grand is right.
2: Grand is right. Uh, Horace Tabor, who'd made a fortune from mining in Leadville, decided he wanted to play a bigger role in the capital city of Denver. So he came to Denver in 1879. He built the city's finest office building down on the corner of Larimer. And then two years later, he came up here to Curtis Street and gifted the city with its first major, wonderful theater building.
0: What stands here now, and where we are standing, is the Federal Reserve Branch Bank. Correct. uh, Which is a brutalist building that, you know, is very different from the Tabor Grand Opera House. Is it understandable to you that I miss a building I never knew, Mark? I mean, When I I look at the Tabor Grand, I just think, My goodness, if I could have been inside.
2: I agree, I've been that way forever myself with old photographs of uh, old buildings and that Tabor was heavily photographed. There's even one I have uh, seen that is taken in 1947 and it was dingy, it was dirty, but it was still beautiful.
0: It had a 1,500 seat auditorium inside. The interior was as impressive as the exterior. Gas chandeliers?
2: Gas chandeliers, beautiful carpets, Cherry wood, panelling, plush upholstery. I mean, and it was the sort of high Victorian grandeur. Murals, uh, a beautiful scenic mural painted above the proscenium arch. And, of course, the famous stage curtain that was also painted uh, and somewhat prophetic in Tabor's case since it was it talked about how fleet the works of man are. And then in the panic of 1893, he lost all his money.
0: Could you describe the architecture a bit? You said Victorian, I
3: think.
2: Well, yeah, Queen Anne is kind of the term, more of a commercial Queen Anne. Uh, The architect was Willoughby Edbrook. He was from Chicago, and he had sent his brother, Frank Edbrook, out to Denver originally to supervise the office building's construction, and then he continued supervising here, and then Frank stayed in Denver and became our city's most prominent late 19th century architect.
0: You called the Tabor Grand Opera House a gift to the city. It's not that he gave it to the city. No,
2: it was a commercial enterprise to be sure. And you know, the shows had to make money. The building wasn't entirely an opera house. There was office space on all the floors uh, surrounding the auditorium space, and of course retail on the street level. Torn down in 1964, but not because of urban
0: renewal, which was the reason so many of Denver's great buildings were raised.
2: Well, I would say yes and no to that, because in the 60s, and the 50s really, starting then, there was a whole push, not only in Denver, but in, in most large cities, to do urban renewal. And here in Denver, before the Denver Urban Renewal Authority got really going downtown, some private industries around here, wanted to clean up the area, and so the Central Bank and Trust Company, which was not far from here at 15th and Arapaho, formed a realty company and they started buying up nearby blocks and tearing things down.
0: You you described at this point the Tabor Opera House as being dingy.
2: Yeah. It it, it was dingy, but it was still beautiful. Uh, It just needed cleaning up and probably updating with, you know, new plumbing and whatnot but it could have been saved. But it wasn't. It was not. Uh, originally, the spot was slated to be an apartment building, uh, similar to Brooks Towers, which was another one of the central bank's projects.
0: And which used to be the tallest building in Denver.
2: I think it was, yes. And they had announced a, an apartment project for this site, but also at the same time, the Federal Reserve Bank was in very cramped quarters over a block away at 17th and Arapahoe, And they were... Talking about possibly moving the Federal Reserve Branch Bank to the suburbs, which had all the downtown banks kind of in a tizzy, hmm. because they, the, the main function in those days, everybody wrote checks for everything, and so the Federal Reserve Bank, all these checks would be loaded onto armored trucks and brought to the bank for processing. Huh. It was a clearinghouse, so this was actually built mostly to process, you know, checks. This Federal
0: Reserve Bank that we're standing next to in the brutalist style, which, by the way, comes from the French for concrete, even though it has a brutal quality to it. Uh, That same year, 1964, something else happened in terms of historic preservation.
2: Well, just a few blocks away, a young woman named Dana Crawford she had come downtown one hot summer day, and her car stalled back in the days when people had vapor lock. Her car stalled on the 1400 block of Larimer Street, and she fell in love, and she decided to develop it into Larimer Square. And
0: Dana Crawford, now the namesake of the Crawford Hotel, largely responsible for the re of Union Station and indeed the saving of Larimer Square, Denver's oldest block. And much of Lodo. But uh, I guess she missed the Tabor Grand Opera House by a little bit. Just a bit. Well, speaking of demolition, I understand your grandfather, Mark, won the contract to tear down a different building, the Old City Hall.
2: The Old City Hall, it was the pride of Denver in uh, 1881 when it opened, but it was rendered obsolete when the city built a city and county building up on Civic Center. And it became the police headquarters for some years. Uh, Then the police built their own. The fire department used it as their headquarters. But it was considered an eyesore and the city decided to tear it down. I have to say,
0: I have always assumed the city county building that exists today, it's imposing and old looking enough that I thought it was always the city seat, but it was not.
2: It was built in 1932 or finished in 1932.
0: Do you miss the old City Hall in the way that I miss the Tabor Grand Opera House?
2: Well, I mean, I do. It uh, it would, it would. I, I think it would be a nice thing to have on the corner of Larimer Square, which is where it was. Yeah. Right across. My family told me when I was a small child, about six years old, we were visiting Larimer Square with my grandmother, and we parked in that parking lot across from Larimer Square, and my mother pointed out the bell, the old brass bell that's sitting there on that cement pedestal. Oh,
0: I've never noticed
2: it. It's right there across, you know, right there on the corner. Next time you're down there, check it out. But this bell was City Hall's bell. And the family legend, which I cannot verify, was that it was my grandfather's idea to save the bell and put it there.
0: So different from being saved by the bell, I, yes, guess. I guess. Saving so. the bell itself. Yeah, and he
2: only, he didn't like tearing it down. He actually, he felt badly about it. Huh. He, he liked to build things, not tear them down, but he needed, you know, to f- feed his family. And uh, he was the low bidder when they put out uh, requests for bids.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and historian and author Mark A. Barnhouse joins us. He's written Vanished Denver Landmarks, We're standing at the site of one of those vanished landmarks now. Where the Federal Reserve is these days used to be the stunning Tabor Grand Opera House. You divide your book about vanished landmarks into residential ones, commercial, retail, hospitality, and institutional. Uh, Why don't you tell us about the Windsor Hotel, not far from here at 18th and Larimer. People wanted to save it, but they just couldn't.
2: It had a huge sentimental value for a lot of Denverites of the 50s and 60s because there were so many wonderful legends about it. And it, like the Tabor Opera House, it was associated with Horace Tabor. Ah. It was built with English capital, and when it was under construction, Horace Tabor and his partner William Bush decided that they wanted to operate it. And so Tabor took a master lease on the property and was responsible for turning it into Denver's finest hotel of the, of the era. This Keep in mind, this is a full decade before the Brown Palace, more than a decade. Oh,
0: goodness, before the Brown Palace. Before
2: the, the Brown Palace.
0: And then, of course, the English money makes me think of the name, the Windsor
2: yes. Hotel. Although it was actually named for a hotel by the same architect that was built in Montreal. Okay. The places.
0: <laughs> and there was a desire to save it. I guess uh, people had grown quite fond of it, but
2: Well, and, you know, famously, Jack Kerouac came through in the late 40s. And uh, if you've read On the Road, you know there's this wonderful scene that takes place in the novel, in the bar, the Windsor Bar, uh, which had been the scene of so much over the years. Well, in fact, you have brought On the Road with you. Do you care to read that passage, Mark? Sure. Remember that the Windsor, once Denver's great Gold Rush Hotel and in many respects a point of interest. In the big saloon downstairs, bullet holes are still in the walls. Hmm. Had once been Dean's home, that's Dean Moriarty. Yes. He'd lived here with his father in one of the rooms upstairs. He was no tourist. He drank in this saloon like the ghost of his father. He slopped down wine, beer, and whiskey like water. His face got red and sweaty, and he bellowed and hollered at the bar and staggered across the dance floor where honky-tonkers of the West danced with girls and tried to play the piano. And he threw his arms around ex-cons and shouted with them in the uproar. So this would become a dwelling place of ex-cons. It perhaps had lost its luster? Uh, Larimer by then was skid row. It was lined with taverns and uh, pawn shops and, and pool halls and that kind of thing.
0: Let's wrap up with your favorite vanished landmark. This is a residential one
2: called Brinton Terrace. Brinton Terrace, when I was writing this book, I, I wanted to include major well-known landmarks like the Windsor and the Opera House and so yeah. on, but I wanted to include some things that maybe people didn't know about. Brinton Terrace was uh, one of Denver's first luxury apartment buildings, built in 1882. Uh, it was behind Trinity Methodist Church, although Trinity wasn't actually built yet, mm. at the corner of 18th and Lincoln Streets. And originally, it was kind of a high-society apartment house. It was for people who uh, who wanted to be in society. They wanted to be near the city, but they didn't want to have the upkeep of a big yard and a big house. So That's going to speak to a lot of families today. Even now, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was going on you know, a century and a half ago. But over time, what made Brinton so very interesting is that in 1906, the owner at that point decided she wanted to create, and it was a woman, wanted to create a, a place that... Artists of all sorts could live under one roof and collaborate. Hmm. And it, it got to be uh, very bohemian. There were architects, visual artists, sculptors, poets, singers, musicians, you name it, any kind of art.
0: We might think of it as a co-op today to some extent. Yeah,
2: I think that's, that's a good description. And was the idea that they were subsidized a bit? No, these, these, this is long before the National Endowment for the Arts or anything like that. Uh-huh. They collaborated though. There, there's an old library building in West Denver that used to be the Dickinson Library, and the architect uh, was Maurice Biscoe, who lived at, here at the Brenton Terrace, and then the murals were by Alan True. The muralist who, who lived in Brinton Terrace.
0: Ah, and that's the muralist whose work also appears in the state capitol.
2: And the Brown Palace and other places, and yes. And the Colorado
0: National Bank building. Mm-hmm. So he was there at Brinton. Yes, he was. It must have been quite the atmosphere, Mark.
2: Yeah, I think it was. Uh, in the book, I, I describe a scene where there were so many, in the summertime with the windows open, with all the people practicing their music, it would have been quite a cacophony.
0: Well, this has been a delight. I wonder if there's any part of you that thinks we would handle these buildings differently today.
2: I think there would be an outcry. I mean, we saved Tom's Diner. Uh, <laughs> On you know, which, which, by the standards of its time, was considered disposable when it was built. Nobody thought anything about Googie architecture, and we rallied to save that. But you know, even now, old buildings get torn down all the time, old houses and old commercial buildings
0: right it's part of the realities
2: and we've lost a lot of spectacular ones we've saved a lot of of the ones that were less spectacular only when we woke up in the 70s 60s and 70s and started saving things
0: well thank you so much for being with us i guess it's time to vanish ourselves okay mark a barnhouse has written vanish denver landmarks i've tweeted photos of the buildings we discussed at cpr warner They'll also be on today's podcast page at cpr.org slash Matters, And the show continues in this next half hour as we remember a man who worked hard so that fewer landmarks would vanish. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC.
3: The ears of the Abert squirrel are long and fuzzy, like a shaggy cross between bat and rabbit ears. It's a cartoonish creature, often gray with a white underside, but the all black subspecies is found only in Colorado, looking like a real life Pokemon in the pine trees. And that's not the only distinction for an Abert squirrel. It leaps easily from tree to tree and hangs from branches using only its strong hind legs, which frees up its front paws to handle food. As it eats, it contributes to the health of the ponderosa forest it prefers, spreading seeds as it dines on the cones. And as an abert squirrel digs up certain fungi, it disperses the spores of ectomycorrhizal fungus, which then grow around the tree, extending the reach of the ponderosa's own roots. All in a day's work for an abert squirrel, every day of the year, As the only North American squirrel that does not store food for the winter. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Dazzle Jazz in Denver.
0: Friends and family are remembering Carl Bourgeois as a visionary, someone committed to community and just a nice guy. Bourgeois died last week at age 71 of heart disease He worked to revitalize historic neighborhoods in Denver and Colorado Springs, ones that were especially significant to people of color. My co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, spoke with former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb about bourgeois life and legacy.
4: The older you get, the longer you live, you come across a lot of different people in life. And some of them you uh, know kindly, some of them you prefer not to meet again, and some others that you haven't had much contact with. But Carl Bourgeois, he would fall in the category of what I refer to as just being a good man. Carl was thoughtful, he was kind, and he always gave back to the community. He used his talents, his uh, academic talents of being a banker and and being a finance geek to uh, say, I want to do something more than that. I want to give back. Uh, he moved to Denver, and one of the first things he undertook was seeing Five Points in particular as a gym that had never been reached its full maturity of what it can be. Carl began purchasing several uh, buildings in the uh, Five Points area, developing them, um, moving in the Five Points area himself, demonstrating that specifically Black people can move in an area that uh, that many people have shunned in the past. And he's also um, been there for every community event, I think, that's been held. Carl has also been a uh, contributor to all those events. I know for myself as mayor that uh, upon my uh, inauguration as Denver's first Black mayor, Carl was one of those that helped sponsor a celebration party for my as part of my inauguration. He also um, held a series of events. When Denver hosted the Democratic National Convention. He's given to every worthwhile purpose, both in the area of uh, development and construction, but also in philanthropy. When Carl became sick a few years ago, he started uh, switching his focus to Colorado Springs, his hometown, purchasing property there, uh, redeveloping property there in the Springs, and beginning an annual uh, July 4th weekend uh, Jazz Fest in Colorado Springs. And uh, he continued doing this even when he was very ill and in palliative care prior to going in hospice. Uh, I know the last time I saw him, my wife and I saw him, was on July the 3rd, in which he had sponsored a uh, jazz festival for the July 4th weekend there in Colorado Springs. And we went up to spend time with Carl, who was there, and I said, man, we came up here to see you. This is not about the jazz festival. It's about being here with you as you fight through this illness that uh, you're fighting so bravely. He also had a passion for Africa, as I do. And he bought a farm in South Africa right adjacent to the farm owned by Hugh Masekila. He went there often. He had uh, one of his relatives take care of the farm while he was here in Denver. And that just, again, reinforces who Carl Bourgeois was. He'll truly be missed. He truly is a person that gave back to the community before it was ever popular. And lastly, he also identified projects that were gems in the community that were people considered to be not advisable to buy, not advisable to redevelop, not advisable to say that this is meaningful to the community and needs to be maintained and needs to be held. Carl was one of the first to say, I'm going to develop these properties, I'm going to buy these properties, and I'm going to keep them here for the community as a whole. So it maintains Black ownership.
5: Can you share with us, uh, does any story come to mind that you think kind of epitomizes Carl and what he was like and what he was about?
4: Well, I would think of what his last project is that he undertook. And that was to return to the town of his birth, Colorado Springs, and say, I'm going to redevelop this area where most of the black people in Colorado Springs lived and the area where he grew up, the area that uh, where his mother raised their family and said, I'm going to purchase this house and I'm going to purchase the house where the wealthier white people lived. And I want to purchase our family's home. And uh, we're going to redevelop this property and turn it into a retreat center and a conference center so that uh, future generations in, in, in Colorado Springs specific will say, that Carl Bourgeois saved this from the wrecking ball. And what he did was save it for not only his children's generation, but also future generations to come.
0: Former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb reflecting on Carl Bourgeois. Chandra also spoke with Bourgeois' longtime business partner, Sheila King. In 1983, they co-founded Civil Technology, which was a part of high-profile projects like Denver International Airport, the redevelopment of what's now Central Park, as well as the Denver Art
3: Museum.
6: Carl was a caring, compassionate person. He was very innovative, cared about small business, especially small minority businesses. And he was always helping to further people along, helping people to grow. And he cared about community, He cared about family. He cared about community.
5: It's interesting you say that because you talked about how he helped so many people, particularly business people, but, you know, some people will just focus on maybe helping an individual or certain individuals, but it seems that he did so much more to help communities, like entire communities that
6: were struggling. Can
5: you speak to that?
6: So uh, the 2400 block of Washington Street in Denver, Colorado, Five Mm -hmm. Points Community, was considered the most blighted block in Denver. And he saw it as, a, uh, he saw it as a, a challenge, but also as a way to help a black community grow. And so the 2400 block was, he renovated the block. There mm. were several commercial buildings on the block. He renovated the block. And then sometimes he offered space. Sometimes he offered space for little or no money. But the whole thing was to help people grow.
5: Carl was a businessman. And um, in many ways, it was that business acumen that gave him the resources to take on these passion projects. But for some people in business, it's really just about, you know, the money and the money you can make, the return on the investment. But Carl, from what I've read, made a point to focus on communities of color.
6: Because those are the communities that sometimes get left behind. And so, yeah, it wasn't about return on investment for Carl. It was about how can we make a place a better place? And so that was his vision, on making a place a better place. And not just your... (laughs) It was never just your run-of-the-mill, you know, cookie-cutter place. There was always a twist to it, so... It was a better look, or even in some communities, folks don't have windows because, you know, they're going to be broken or that kind of thing. But he decided, no, these these buildings will have big windows. And, uh, and folks, I think, appreciated it.
5: What did his work mean to these communities? You know, when we think about Carl's lasting legacy and impact, what did it mean for these communities of color? to have these resources brought to them and this vision you described that Carl had?
6: Well, I think for some who had business, they were able to launch a business further than what they would have been able to launch it before. Um, it became a meeting place for not only people of color, but all people. People got to meet, meet each other and and share ideas, you know, just almost break bread together.
5: What do you think it meant for people to see an African American man leading in this way and investing in this way and giving back to the community in this way?
6: He used to work with the community kids whether they were, you know, whatever they were. <laughs> Spanish, black, white, whatever. He would work with the community kids to give them little jobs to do and and in doing that, they would learn about landscaping or construction or business ideas, they were appreciative of seeing a person of color being able to hold his own and help them out and just just be there for them.
5: What do you want people to know about Carl Bourgeois?
6: Basically, if you can help somebody do so. It doesn't have to be financial. It could be a smile. It could be a hand hand handout. Just be acknowledging a person. Sheila, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: My colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield speaking with Sheila King about her longtime business partner, Carl Bourgeois. He died last week at age 71. Earlier, we heard recollections from former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb. You can also read Chandra's Remembrance at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: Numbers tell a story, and they can show how our world is changing and who is most affected. A that hit
7: a sobering milestone last year. More than 93,000 people.
5: When numbers are high or low or simply missing, there's often a human story to tell.
8: I don't want her to just be a
7: statistic. We
8: need to figure something out and make sure this stops happening.
5: I'm data reporter Veronica Penny from CPR News Investigations. I use data to find and report stories. You can hear them on the radio or see them online with maps, charts, and graphics. Come to cpr.org investigations.
0: He's considered one of the greatest athletes of all time, but the International Olympic Committee didn't remember it that way until now. This month, the IOC reinstated Jim Thorpe as the sole gold medalist in the 1912 Olympic decathlon and pentathlon. The reinstatement comes after decades of petitions. Thorpe was indigenous, and when the IOC stripped him of his medals for violating amateurism rules, many claimed it was motivated by racism. David Bledsoe is with the American Indian College Fund in Denver. And let's revisit our conversation about Thorpe from 2020. Jim Thorpe was a member of the Fox and Sac Nations in Oklahoma, His athleticism was discovered at a boarding school that assimilated Native American children. As we said, in the 1912 Games, he won the gold in pentathlon and the decathlon. What was it about his performance that makes people call him one of the greatest athletes ever?
7: Well, the fact that he won both in that 1912 Olympic Games, uh, but also because he was uh, a champion in several professional sports, whether that was football, baseball. Uh, As we had talked about before, he even won a ballroom dancing uh, intercollegiate competition when he was at Carlisle Indian School. So his um, athleticism and ability were just remarked upon by everyone from the King of Sweden to Dwight Eisenhower, who actually played against him.
0: You have been on the program previously talking about Jim Thorpe and and the victories at the 1912 Games. Like these were not photo finishes. These were very clear victories, right?
7: Yes. And that was one of the reasons that he is so well regarded, not only among uh, Native American people, but among people who follow sports, Olympic history uh, and the, the evolution of sports over time, especially in the United States.
0: In two of his track events, the 100-meter dash and the 1,500-meter run, Thorpe set records that went unbroken for decades. And many say he faced discrimination at the Olympics. Do you see evidence of
7: that? Yes, um, mainly because when we look at the the medals that were taken away from him uh, for supposed non-amateur competition, um, This was a common practice among athletes of the time. And the fact that Jim Thorpe was called out for that, had his medals removed, and they were only restored 30 years after his death, uh, was really considered to be a a racial slight more than an actual uh, rule uh, breaking.
2: Yeah,
0: just a, a little bit of background here. In 1913 an American newspaper reported that Thorpe had earned a stipend for playing minor league baseball. And at the time, you had to be an amateur to compete at the Olympics, and so the IOC stripped Thorpe of his medals. But you say that it, it was not uncommon for athletes to have dual roles like that. Um, so you, you think this was unevenly applied. Is that what I hear you saying?
7: Right. Um, when you know When you have certain elements that are wanting to um, make an example uh, and, and that Jim was was the one who was unfortunately the victim of that. Uh, it's it becomes a, a racial issue And for him um, in his career and all that he was able to accomplish, even you know when you look at the the two uh, his two competitors that came in second and third, um, when they were, awarded the medals after um they were taken from jim they said no we don't want it <gasps> you know he he is the winner his athletic competition uh was was what was what was deserving
0: i just want to note that the small i think it would be fair to call it a stipend that he earned in baseball was really like just to cover his food uh, he was not making bank
7: Right, right. It was really just something for him to continue to compete uh, during the off from you know his college competitions. So,
0: I also know that he faced discrimination at the games themselves. Didn't didn't he have equipment stolen?
7: Yes, uh, before one of the, the the competitions in the decathlon, his shoes were gone. All of a sudden, he he couldn't find them, and he had to actually take shoes out of the trash that he found a mismatched pair. And, of course, performed incredibly well, (laughs) you know, beating everyone by huge margins uh, with, you know, just shoes that he just found laying around.
0: So the International Olympic Committee has taken steps to address this because back in, I think it was 83, it named Thorpe co-gold medalist and presented his children with replacement medals. But you, you don't see that as enough.
7: No, when we talk specifically about representation uh, and about the awards that certain groups and certain people are bestowed upon, we really see the record, uh, the correct record, as being an important part of what not only Native American people see as representative to them, uh, the places that they stand in, whether that would be in sports, in politics, uh, in any space, and having that record be reflective of what the actual truth is is very important. Do
0: you hear that from young people? I mean, you obviously work with young people at the Native American College Fund.
7: Yeah, at the American Indian College Fund, we're supporting Native students in institutions throughout the United States, and the things that they face—not only um, in the space of you know public opinion or perspective, but also you know facing things like poverty like uh, suicide rates that are much higher than the average uh, throughout the nation, those things have a compounding effect, historical traumas, the ways that people are treated and viewed. And so this is just one more step in that path to kind of restore the dignity and respect that not only Jim Thorpe deserves, but also any Native person who's seeking excellence in their fields. I
0: just want to say that, you know, Jim Thorpe went on to a Hall of Fame career in football. He even served as the first president of what became the National Football League. David, thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Ryan. David Bledsoe is with the American Indian College Fund in Denver. We spoke in 2020 about the effort to reinstate Jim Thorpe's Olympic gold medals. This month, the International Olympic Committee declared him the sole winner of the 1912 decathlon and triathlon. Sticking with sports, the Military Basketball Association finals recently took place in Denver. CPR's Tony Gorman attended
8: and found the league is very much a support system. The Military Basketball Association isn't like your usual pickup game at the YMCA, the league promotes mental health and suicide prevention within the military community. MBA Commissioner Mike Myers. We've got to start you know, uh, combating um, those harmful behaviors with positive things that are in everyone's community and at every military installation, and that's what I'm trying to do um, as a volunteer. Myers says he's passionate about this mission because he's dealt with PTSD himself. He says he sees coaches as a beacon of hope. For some players. That's who they confide in, that's who they talk to, being able to confide in other people about some of the things that are stressing them out or that are, are making their life uh, challenging and difficult. Tournament director Al Mayon says the league has come a long way since it was founded in 2017. The finals were once played in a high school gym. We're playing at, a, uh, at the University of Gold Crown Arena in Denver and we're playing at the Metro State and the North of Colorado, Denver. But the NBA still has a long way to go in terms of funding. There is no Department of Defense dollars for this. That's NBA Deputy Commissioner Angel Acevedo. He says most of the teams are funded out of pocket. So everybody
7: pays for their plane ticket, everybody pays for their uh, lodging, everybody pays
3: for everything basically
8: he says some individual military bases support the league but not much the mba's next step is to find more sponsorships from larger businesses and groups that support the military
7: Hey, 20,
4: hoop,
8: tony gorman cpr news and that is colorado
0: matters for today with thanks to the home team tyler bender carl bielek
3: anthony cotton pete kramer
7: andrea dukakis rachel estabrook
5: Michelle Fulcher.
3: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes.
5: Carla Jimenez.
3: Pedro Lumbrano.
5: Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.